You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. I am a bedroom Beethoven. <laughs> hey everybody, welcome to episode 118. Cypress Hill invades the podcast. My guest this week is the legendary Eric Bobo. Yeah, and if we go back even further, they may know me as uh, uh, being the son of Willie Bobo. Yeah, and if you want to copy his style, go to Kinko's son. Yeah, exactly. Lots to discuss this week as the percussionist for the Beastie Boys during the years surrounding ill communication and about to cross the 30-year mark for the OG Cypress Hill. We get into the weeds with Eric Bobo's broad musical influences and what started on one faithful evening in Hollis, Queens has transcended into 50 years of musicality and we pump the brakes through Cypress Hill smoking sessions, day jobs, college, mentorships, all leading up to his newest body of work, Empires, with him and Stu Bangas behind the boards with some legendary talent lending themselves to it. Uh, let me name drop a couple names. You got Apathy, Ill Bill, Mr. Lift, the homie Retmatic, Psycho Less, Exhibit, Feral Monch, and of course Be Real, and more. Go get that album wherever it is that you get music. Right before we jump into the fires of conversation, though, this little podcast of mine would like to thank you for your attention to this short sales pitch on how to support me. I'm everywhere online to consume this great content. YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. Just search for the show. Bedroom Beethoven's is the website. And if you want to donate the show, you can support me. Patreon.com slash Bedroom Beethoven's. It's always appreciated. I want to keep the show ad-free. I want to grow this little community of supporters. It means a lot to me. The official website has a shirt if you want to rep some merch. And as always, shout out to Super Producer J57 and the whole 5-7 Collective fam. One could say I'm building a little empire myself in my own little way. But the man of the hour is here. So let's get this episode rolling. Sit back, light one up, and let's peer inside the mind of the great and powerful Eric Bobo. Yeah, I, 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 I don't want to begin our conversation on a somber note, but I do want to say, you know, with Black Rob passing, Shock G, DMX, it's easy to overlook other entertainers once the news has passed on a bit. But I did want to say RIP to Ty, who passed away to uh, COVID, a friend of yours, and it's been it's been a hell of a 12, 18 months. I mean, it's been it's been crazy. The fact of you know uh, how this has really affected the world, everybody in it, you know, and uh, we've lost some really, really good people, 
we we have to just uh you know keep them in our memory and continue to go forward and we can finally fight this thing you know yeah right right before the pandemic i remember you were do you did a show like right down the street from me in cedar park texas with dj lord playing a gig which is I think it's like 15 minutes away from me and cedar park is like a really big city south of austin right. very rarely does that city host real music like that so that was a big deal right right i remember that show remember that show yeah and we just passed uh you just say you, you've been in in cyprus for over 25 years we just passed the 40th anniversary of tierra city nights wow yeah that's a that's a big record my dad was was a part of that record as well and uh produced a couple of tracks and played on that record as well. Which in Spanish means earth. Yes. Yes. Back when, and back when bands had photo shoots on the cover and the liner notes had stories upon stories. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Man. So, and I got to say, you got to be an OG in everything you do, huh? Cause back in 2006, you teamed up with LA union, uh, 1910 FM to do a series of podcasts and not even Joe Rogan was doing podcasts in 2006. I mean, even Bobo's Corner was way early. Yeah, I mean, I think I like to say that I was um, ahead of the curve. You know, I mean, I'm I've always kept my uh, uh, my eyes and ears on what's the next thing or what's new, and seeing how that can fit into what I was already doing. And uh, when I started to do the the podcast, uh, uh, La Union nineteen ten, I mean, that was a great opportunity. This was way way early on uh and even getting back to like the blogging and stuff like that be real and i were doing that early on when we were touring and we would be writing our soldier stories and we were documenting every show so we were doing that before the blogging thing was 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 hot so like i said i i like to think that i uh i keep ahead of the curve yeah, and these these podcasts were like a mix of like rap and Latin hip hop and classic rock, and then you would come in in between each selection and kind of uh, you know tell some stories or give some background on the songs. Yeah, uh, what I what I really wanted to do is you know I mean I'm a musician first and foremost, and I think that me playing different genres of music that's a part of my my musical forte. So I kind of wanted to express that in that particular podcast and I would do blocks. I would do a hip hop block and I would do then a rock block. I would do a Latin hip hop block or a salsa, you know, block. And I, it was more just to really have people, you know, open up their minds and expand their, their, their musical taste and see what else was out there. This, this love of music started at an early age when your father rest in peace passed away it was a major undertaking for you because you took over his group when you were what 13 14 yeah yeah i i actually turned uh just turned 15 when he passed and uh, i was already doing shows in his place before he passed because uh he was in he was in poor health but yeah I, I took over the group at 15 and we were doing a lot of the the jazz clubs uh in la and I was able to do some jazz festivals and things like that just to try to keep the the name and legacy alive. That makes for a good story because what 15-year-old is doing that? All your friends must have been in their 30s or something because there's no way you could have hung out with other 14, 15-year-olds and be able to relate to them. So maybe it was a lonely time. You know, it was it was different. It was like uh, two worlds for sure because, you know, I I, I really couldn't talk with my, my schoolmates about what I was doing because they just wouldn't understand. They wouldn't understand the magnitude. It would be more like their parents would 
would be uh, more understanding. But, you know, it was like I had two worlds because, you know, my, my parents made sure that I grew up in the most normal way as possible. You know, if I didn't do good in school, I didn't get good grades, I wasn't going to play and jam with my dad, you know. So they made it a point to instill in me the, the, the importance of the education part of it. But I just, you know, I couldn't really say a lot to my friends because, like I said, you know, if I'd mentioned groups like, you know, Weather Report and Miles Davis and, and Ray Charles and Tito Puente and people like that, they would just look at me like, what? Who was that? You know, they, they were listening to stuff like Earth, Wind & Fire and Parliament Funkadelic and a lot of the funky R&B stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's crazy. How, how's the father-son relationship, though? Is he, is he more of a – at that time, is, was he more of a mentor than a father figure? And by that, I mean, you know, when you guys bond, it's probably over music, not so much like, hey, Dad, can you help me ride a bike, tie my shoe? I mean, you probably learned about the birds and the bees playing in jazz clubs, you know? <laughs> well, our, our musical bond was uh, prominent. You know, I mean, he was busy a lot, and we did bond over music. So it was it was more like that, you know. My my older brother, uh, Gil, who's fourteen years older than me, kind of did some of the other fatherly things. So I still was able to get that part of it, just not so much with my dad. But the time that I did spend with him and uh, being in rehearsals or in the studio and being able to watch him work and being able to play alongside him, I mean, I wouldn't give those those days up for anything. find really cool too is pretty much your dad's entire adult life he was with your mother and i don't think people really think about how amazing that is because she didn't have the luxury of like barry white's wife who was in the band herself you know if your dad went to ghana to play in an era of no cell phones i mean you were gone until you came back and they really held it together exactly exactly i mean my mom sometimes uh, for a time, she was my dad's manager, but again, she wasn't really traveling, so she was a stay-at-home mom, and, you know, it, it, it was difficult at times because, again, we didn't have the technology of what we have now, you know, to be able to, you know, FaceTime or do anything like that, you know, either calls or letters, you know, but my dad, and he wasn't really away for that, that, that long a time because, uh, when I was born, you know, he was still touring and stuff, and, and he would come back, and I didn't recognize him. I would cry, you know. He he made it a thing that he wasn't going to go and be gone for more than, like, two weeks or a week and a half. And, you know, he didn't want to really be away because he didn't want me not knowing who he was.
that's rare. Like in that in that era of musicians to really prioritize family like that. I'd love to hear that. Well, it was you know I guess it was also a different time because I you know my brother, you know he was away more when my brother was growing up because you know when you're starting your career you're just getting in it, you know you're going to do everything in your power to 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 keep in it. Uh, by the time I was born, you know, he was already established. You know, he was able to call his shots a little more. He was a leader of his own band. So he was able to do those things, you know. So I benefited more from that than my brother did. But at the same time, he was a, he was a busy man. How, how did your mom feel about your dad and you playing nightclubs when you were like at kindergarten age? My mom didn't even really want me to do music. You know, she was very fearful because she, you know, she was with my dad. They were together since the age of 17. She knew the ups and downs. She knew what what was out there. But at the same point, you know, she knew that I loved it. And she knew that it was something I was born with and I was born to do. So, you know, she, she kind of took a back seat, but she didn't do it without any fear, you know. And at the same time, you know, when I would be out there with my dad, my dad did take care of me there. He wasn't like, all right, son, I'm going to go out and hang out with the band and you just stay here. He wasn't like that. He was very, very attentive with me. So uh, I didn't have to deal with that part of it or see him in any any kind of way or drunk or anything like that that was disruptive. That was not around. So uh, it, it, it was pretty it was pretty cool. And the first lady of, of jazz keyboard, Mary Lou Williams, gave your dad the Bobo title at around the same age. When you took over the band, he was about 14, 15. Exactly. Maybe this was before, but I'm not sure about the timeline, but Chick should have made the Korea name cool. Why did she think maybe Willie Korea didn't have a nice ring to it? Uh, you know, I don't, I, you know, I don't know. I think it was also at a time that, you know, a lot of musicians were always kind of having a different name, you know, either a nickname or something like that. And... You know, I, I'm sure Dizzy Gillespie, his first name isn't Dizzy. At that time, they were just thinking about, you know, things that were kind of cool. And she thought that Bobo, Willie Bobo, had a much better ring than William Korea. She was right in that in that respect, you know. But, uh, yeah, I think that uh, with, with, with Chick Korea, you know, his first name isn't Chick, but that was a nickname. So Chick Korea, that's kind of cool. That's kind of a, a cool flow. So I think it was all about flow, I think. I think so, too. I, I, I know on the Piano Contempo album, your dad's name was spelled with a Y, at least on the cover instead of I-E. But, but later records, it was, it was changed. So maybe it was like, how can I spell my name the coolest, maybe? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, in uh, a lot of Latin uh, households, the, the name Willie is spelled with a Y, not really with a W-I-L-L-I-E. So, you know, you, you're still back and forth, but it, it was, it was Willie with a IE, uh, from, from a certain point on, you know, that, that could have been, I guess, marketing. And then also back then they, they wanted you to the, the, like the output is ridiculous. You know, when people mention your father, they don't mention the output from 65 to 68, he released nine projects from like Spanish Greece to Bobo motion. And this is before Miles Davis and Santana and traveling the world so he put in the work before the real work even started and i think a work ethic if you presented that to any modern day musician they'd have the shakes they'd have the the panic sweats back then <clears throat> the work ethic was different i mean everybody had to get in where they fit in 
And back in the day, it wasn't uncommon to release four albums in one year. You know, a lot of these albums were done in a, a matter of a couple of days. You know, they would do it live. It was a whole different process. You know, it was no such thing as it's going to take me four years to release an album. You know, you, you'll be gone, gone and forgotten if you did something like that. Also being surrounded with all of that talent. I mean, you had to do whatever you needed to do to stand out. My my dad was able to do that at an early age. I mean, at I think it was like 18, 19 years old, he was voted best percussionist in Downbeat magazine. I mean, that was that was a really, really big deal. With with him, Mongo Santa Maria, Tito Puente, them three formed what still arguably today the best percussion rhythm section ever back then you had to really put in that that work and that work ethic and the new artists of today they don't know anything about that and so i mean and i'm not no disrespect to any uh, of the new artists but it was just a different time it was a different time yeah i I would i i want to use my platform to amplify last year the um the Spanish Greece, the life and sounds of Willie Bobo. Because when I when I dove into stuff like that, and I I found out musicians like Durf Recklaw, and I and I see his playing, I get introduced to other people. I, I don't know. It just seems like it's a rabbit hole that could benefit people that love music. They should start there. I think it's a fascinating era. Yeah, I mean, good, great music all around was coming out from a lot of different artists during that time. So. I mean, it is definitely a great time of music to study and listen to and and kind of get from and get ideas from. And I mean, those those things are tested and true even to this day. And that's why those albums are classics. That's why those albums were were sampled later on in hip hop. That's why they they stand strong today. Yeah, and if we talk about the golden age of hip hop, I don't think people mention Hispanics as much as they should. They only really talk about how black people carved the niche, but a lot of the break dancers, a lot of the early guys were Puerto Rican or Dominican or Latin descent in general. It was a mix. It was definitely a mix. It was uh definitely black and brown, you know. The Latinos, uh Puerto Ricans, the Dominicans and the blacks, they all contributed to hip hop. I mean, if you listen to Rappers Delight and Sugar Hill Gang, all that stuff. That was live musicians. There was percussion in there. Uh, that's one. Two, a lot of the DJs were, were you know, uh, Latino, Puerto Rican. The the break dancers, I mean, you know, there were a lot of, you know, Hispanics there. You know, when, when people see a certain, you know, they see a certain face and it's the first time they're seeing it, they they latch on to that. You know, it's like Bitcoin. People say Bitcoin, they don't think of anything else. You know, I mean, there's so many other things out there, but it was the first thing to catch the eye. And when you have Sugar Hill Gang and uh, Curtis Blow and Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, they were all uh, they were all black. So it just became that this was from from basically from black Americans, and it that. Just isn't the case. So how does a soundtrack like Saturday Night Fever end up meaning a lot to you? Wow.
because the percussion. The percussion is very important in a lot of different genres of music. And I think in the disco music, when you have that disco break, that's when you really let loose. What's there? There's some congas, there's some bongos, there's some timbales. Aside from the regular instruments of guitar, drums, and, you know, everything else. So hearing that is like, as long as there was percussion in it, and I can understand what they were doing, that's what I grew to. You know, I grew up jamming along Rapper's Delight and stuff like that. Not only rapping it, but also playing it because there was percussion in it. So to me, it wasn't a a, a, a big thing, you know, to have percussion in hip hop. And that's why I think that I was able to succeed and, and, and make my lane because, you know, playing, playing that with the Beastie Boys and Cypress Hill, you know, when it was just strictly MCs and a DJ, you know, it's, it was something, you know, but, but now, you know, you know, you're getting back to the, to the organics of it, you know, and, and I think that's great. Man, I need to go back and listen to that soundtrack with fresh ears now. <laughs> I'm telling you, if you do and you listen to those breaks, I mean, all those little, oh, just listen to it. This is, I, we should be dancing. You should be dancing by the BGs. That big break right there. What's going on in there? That's some percussion heavy right there. So, yeah, check it out. It's there. Man, I love that. I'm going to check that out. And then also, you know, I, I think you name dropped uh, Tito Puente a couple times. He's the king of Latin jazz. And I think you got a mentorship from him. It must be nice to get pointers from someone dubbed the king. And I'm always fascinated by people who do music their whole life. By 13, he, he was a professional musician. He played six, seven instruments. He even got drafted into the military, served in World War II. He survived and used his GI Bill to go to Juilliard. The guy won a Grammy a year before he died. He was all about music until the moment he passed. And that's just the level of musicality and dedication. I mean, I based my whole podcast on trying to talk to people who embody that. So that must have been great. It was it was really great. For me, it was special because he was very influential on my dad. My dad joined Tito Puente's band when my dad was 20 years old. So he was with Tito for five years. But in those five years, they recorded so many albums. And the original uh, Oye Como Va and things like that, my dad was on those records. My dad was part of that. So when I got a chance to meet him and also play with him at times, I felt, man, I'm learning from the person that also showed my dad stuff. It, it, it was major for me. It was major. Because not everybody really gets that opportunity. I mean, as far as the musicians go, I was able to go and, and see him in these clubs and watch him and study, study him. I'm, I'm going to lump you into that category, too, because your whole life was music. You worked at Music Plus. You also went to college for jazz studies, I believe. Yeah. Oh, my God. You found out that I worked at Music Plus. Yes, I used to. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I was. The thing about when I worked at Music Plus I was like the human Shazam. I was already good. Like, you know, back then 
the person would come and say, I heard this song on the radio. I don't know the lyrics, but it kind of goes like this. Da, 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 da. You know, they would hum it out. And I said, oh, yeah, it's this guy. And then you find it over there. You, this guy, you find it over there. I was like, that was easy. I mean, when you say, okay, stock up, uh, get inventory about all of the cassettes. I used to love that shit because when I was little, when my brother would, you know, pick me up from school and then he'd, you know, go off with his girlfriend in the other room, he'd just put me in front of the turntable and the records. And I would just see the order that they were in and everything like that. That shit was easy. So it was like I was done early. And I, 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 I loved it. I just knew that if I had a job, it had to be involved with music somehow. Wow. So the foundation's there. I mean, you, you worked with music. You went to college for jazz studies. You, le- you led your dad's band. But establishing yourself in jazz itself is hard. And I think that's why almost every great jazz musician of the last hundred years, they have fascinating stories of how hard it is to get on, which is why a lot of their stories end in tragedy. Did you kind of start to notice your life heading in that direction? And maybe it started with like a simple frustration of trying to get on a, in, in the jazz genre? Well, what I started to notice is that, you know, a lot of the, the jazz clubs that I knew, they were starting to change ownership or close. And the essence of the jazz club and, and having those people come and, and perform, that was kind of dying out in a way. L.A. wasn't like Europe that you always see. You could see the great, great jazz artists be there because their appreciation for jazz is on a whole different level. Uh, out here, it was just starting to go away. I mean, the only one of the only like genres of music, if you go to a radio, listen to a radio station and they're asking for donations to keep the station going, primarily is jazz. If you really, if you, if you check it out, they're always asking for donations and it's not that it's a bad thing. But it's like the support is so damn low. Record budgets to make jazz records, they dwindled down heavy. You know, just to me, the appreciation, everything was just going down south. And my frustration came with that. Uh, It didn't deter me from making music. I was already trying to find my voice and try other things. You know, other genres. Hip hop was always kind of included in there. And and a lot of people when and I started doing more of that and I started doing some of the Beastie Boys and more on, on the hip hop side, you know, those old cats were like coming down on me for like, why are you doing that? It's not real music, it's not this, you gotta be doing this this kind of music, you gotta you know. And I, I just didn't see it in that way. They, they, you know, I, I felt like it was people that were trying to hold on to something, but the people that were in control, they didn't look at it in the same way. So, you know, shit was kind of slipping. And I just, you know, I just knew that I had to find another way. Yeah, I think the one-dimensional minded people would think, well, Cypress Hill is just rap, or that might be their knee-jerk reaction. But I, you've been around the Black Crows, Alice in Chains, Beastie Boys, everyone. And if you really listen to Cypress Hill, you're going to listen to blues, rock, reggae. There's a lot of genre blends in there. Yes. And I think that that's, that's important. I mean, even it was getting that with the Beastie Boys when they started doing like 
the instrumental jams, which were like on the jazz, jazzy, funky Latin thing. You know, it, it was expanding. So they understood it. Muggs, you know, doing the beats with Cypress, he understood it because he, he comes from that. The guys come from like different, having all that different music. And, and, and we just put it together. You know, that's, that's what we do. I can't name too many bands that are able to tour with both Gangstar and Coldplay. I mean, it's a short list. Right. <laughs> that's, that's true. That is true. <laughs> well, uh, educate me a little bit. What, what made uh, uh, Juanito Vasquez a great percussion player on Check Your Head? I think that, you know, he fell into a groove with them. And I, I think that he was open enough to, to, to know that he wasn't in a Latin band, but this particular band liked Latin rhythms. In a sense, I think that it was easy for him to be able to lay things down and, 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 and lay a good percussion bed for them to be able to jam to. I mean, he he was he was right before me. I, I don't think that I wouldn't I would have done anything different musically than what he did had I been there in his position. And, you're, and I read that your work with Mixmaster Mike never overlapped on Beastie Boys. No, never. I mean, when he came in, I was not touring with, with the, the Beasties. What happened was that, you know, like a week before, you know, uh, Adrock had asked me, you know, to go, you know, time for the Hello Nasty tour. Cypress had, you know, asked me, you know, told me, all right, we're going to go on tour, smoking grooves and everything. And I committed to it. I mean, I had been flip-flopping for like two years, you know, between groups and nothing ever, you know, flip-flop. Now, I knew that Mixmaster Mike was going to be in the band, you know, Adrock told me and, and he showed me, you know, the, the same tape that, you know, Mixmaster Mike had sent to them and everything like that. So I was well aware that that he was going to be there. You know, I didn't know really too much about the Invisible Scratch Pickles. I didn't know so much about his background. But I, from what I saw, I knew that he was a bad dude and did not share the stage together until uh, he started doing stuff with Cypress. And he's now an honorary member of Cypress Hill. So it's, it's full circle. The universe is very funny sometimes. It's crazy. Crazy. <laughs> I heard uh, I heard Be Real smoked with Melissa Etheridge, which probably wouldn't be on the short list of names you'd expect. So I wanted to ask, you know, who's probably the most unexpected person we would think of that you've smoked with. Uh, okay, let's see if I can remember because I was very big. You know, this is going to come to me probably later. But you know, when you get people like uh, uh, Dan Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd. Yeah! Wow! Yeah, old SNL alum. I, I, I smoked it, and that was during a session, recording session, uh, the Black Crows. Wow! 
You know, so he comes down, he busts out a jar. I'm tripping out. I'm saying, holy shit, that's Dan Aykroyd, you know. So it was, it was that. Yeah, I would put that. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I, I know you got stories and stories for days. Um, I know the Dr. Green Thumb podcast is, is alive and well, but I would love to hear more of you behind the mic. So I'm, I'm glad we were able to kind of connect. And this new project with uh, Stu Bangas, I do want to give you the floor to talk about the album. As you see fit, tell the people about it. I know it's out now. What do they need to know about it? This, this album is like a semi-conceptual album, kind of like a snapshot of 2020, uh, the moods uh, of it and how it affected you know, people as a whole. And I just, you know, helped uh, to get, you know, the word out, you know, as far as that and to, to use the voice and to have uh, a, an array of, of, of MCs. I mean, legends that agreed to be on the record is amazing to have like Farrell Munch and Cujo Goody be real psycho less you know and and also some some guys from that are heavy in the underground world and bring them together and just have fun and make some music and it's a hip-hop record it's 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 grimy when it needs to be it's uh conscious when it needs to be and i think that from top to bottom that it's just a a well-rounded record that everyone can 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 listen to and relate to so uh, be sure to check out Empires out now on all streaming platforms. Uh, that's Eric Bobo, Stu Bangers. Uh, it's, it's, it's heavy. It's and heavy. for the vinyl heads, the vinyl even turned out really nice. Yes, the vinyl, I mean, we have uh, marble, I, I mean, marble, red, uh, different colors, you know, about four different colors. They're almost all gone. Test pressings are gone. Uh, people were hyped on this record before even hearing one song. And I'm just thankful about uh, for the reception. Things have been very, very positive, and uh, we look forward to giving more stuff from the album all year long. Yeah, and I got to say, like, Muggs is going relentless with the collab projects. In the last three years, Al Davino, Rome Streets, Flea Lord, Mock Homie, Crime Apple, Rock Marciano, Little Edo, he must be creating like 10 beats a day. And it's almost like when you guys hit 50 years old, you get a Hollywood walk of fame, you sell 20 million records, and you're still hungry as ever. It's incredible. It's, you know, Muggs, I commend him because he is still, he's still at the top of his game and he's working with heavy duty MCs and some that you might know, some that you might not have heard of. But when you listen to him, you're going to know of him. And it's just a good work ethic. Again, it's a different work ethic. Don't do anything that you don't enjoy doing. I think that both him, myself, be real, other, you know, other other big heads in the game, they're like, we we still love to do this. And we're still hungry for it. And it's still a good friendly competition. It's like, you know, we've done a lot and we've accomplished a lot and grateful for that. But that doesn't mean that it's over. It doesn't mean that we just sit down on our ass and not do anything. You know, it's easy to do that, but, you know, you still have to, you know, show that you're a force. And I think that that's, you know, that's what we're doing. And we're having fun just making the best music that we can. And it's great. It's it's fun, man. It's fun. 
Yeah. And if people want to check out more, they can uh, go to Netflix, check out LA Originals, which has an original score by you. It's an excellent score. And I hope it won't be the last because Eric Bobo, the film composer, that has a nice ring to it. It was great to just dip, dip the foot into, you know, the film scoring thing because uh, it, it's great. It's a, it's a different medium. And it's still creative and you're helping to paint a picture with what's visual. You know, it's, it's, it's a great thing. So, uh, I, I look forward to doing more stuff. Yeah, man. Between Cypress Hill virtual concerts and Bobo token and this new album and scoring and everything beyond, man, I, I can't do anything but wish you a fruitful and successful year. And I know we played email tag. But I'm glad we were able to connect, and I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you for being here. Man, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for being patient, and uh, I'm glad we got to do this, man. Yeah, I, I didn't even know, but you were following me on Twitter, so I was like, man, does he listen to me? I got to reach out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, I got, my ear to, I got my ear to the streets, man. I got my ear to the streets. I appreciate it. <laughs>